to Signal from the MediaNet, the podcast that brings you interactions between faith, journalism, media and content, brought to you by the MediaNet, the Church and Media Network. And we are here for the episode of the month of June. It's just myself here, James Poulter, your host in the studio, looking at a couple of interviews that we've done for the past couple of weeks that bring together some of the interesting stories of what's been going on. We've also got a couple of recommendations for you and some updates to share, so let's get into it. Coming up on the show, I'll have an interview with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. We met together this week to discuss the immigration debate that's happening, obviously around the world, but particularly in the US, in the light of the changes recently to the family separation policy. We spoke about how evangelicalism is being treated in the US and the conflict that that potentially presents for churches, ministers and the media as they begin to think about how to wrestle with this ongoing issue around immigration. They've often been fed a media diet that focuses, you know, in particular, uh, television channels or radio programs or corners of the internet on anecdotal stories that are very scary about immigrants. In just a moment, we'll be catching up with Tim Plimming, one of the MediaNet trustees and the founder of the new TOG Studios in central London in Langham Place, right next to the BBC, where I spoke to him talking about how this could open up a new opportunity for Christian creators. You know, the ability to start to read global audiences with really innovative formats that you might have struggled to get to be commissioner to commission, we are living in that moment. And so there is the challenge for really cracking formats to be done. My discussion with Tim coming up in just a moment. But first, time for a little conference update. If you aren't aware, the Church and Media Conference is coming back this year in October. October the 18th at St Mary's Bryanston Square in Marlebone. And if you want to get in on the early bird rates, well, that is available until the end of the month. So you've only got a day or so left to get that. It's £50 or the standard £65 pricing kicking off in July. If you want to know more about the conference, you can do that by going to the medianet.org and find out more about the agenda other than myself and a few of my friends and colleagues being on the agenda coming up we've got some great people being booked in now for the conference and it's going to be a really exciting time so if you are working in the main, mainstream media maybe you're work, looking at the future of religious programming or you're just interested in the whole area of how christian life can interact with this big content and internet world then now is the time to get your tickets so go over to the Church and Media Net website. You can go to themedianet.org and you can register for the Church and Media Conference on Thursday, the 18th of October. And that is for £50 on the early bird rate or £65 thereafter. Okay, back now to Tim Plimming and my chat with him. Tim is one of the MediaNet trustees, but in his day-to-day life, he is the founder of Green Rock, the content company and studio. And I spoke to him about their new TOG studios that's opening up in the heart of uh, the West End. They're on Langham Place, just across the road from the BBC's broadcasting house. And talking about the new opportunity that smaller content studios like the likes of YouTube Studios could potentially present for other up-and-coming creators to get their shows onto air and onto the airwaves. Here's Tim Plimming. We've um, opened a a small content studio, TV studio, uh, next to the BBC and uh, All Souls Church um, in a building called Henry Wood House. There was actually once a BBC building and, in fact, was once my office. And um, over the last few months, we've been uh, stripping out to uh, what were once meeting rooms and turning them into a 600 square foot flexible studio space. So 
in there we can do everything from still photography to podcasts uh, right up to full live tv production and uh, um indeed you know the first project in there is a is a, a really fantastic uh, live uh, broadcast event with um mary portus the Queen of Shops um, in a project we're doing for The Telegraph and for Nat West, which is about her interviewing business leaders. So, yeah, we're really excited. I, I guess um, the the space is is uh, is really close to a kind of YouTube space. Anyone who knows YouTube spaces, sort of fully flexible spaces that YouTube created for their influencers. Um, we realize that there's lots of demand for that, but you can't commercially currently, um, you can't commercially rent that type of space and so we thought that um we would create one ourselves and that launched um last week and tim just uh, how do you feel about this overall growing move from people wanting to pursue a media career and they see themselves as right i now need to go get myself a job at beeb or at itv or channel 4 you know or one of the kind of independent companies that's already well established with those primary outlets to moving to this much more self-starter model where i've got an idea i'm not going to go seek a commission i'm just going to go rent a space and just start making something do you think that that is yeah. a long-term uh, sustainable model yeah 100 i mean I, you know i think was someone we were talking to this week and they said that if they were someone starting off in the business now this is in fact it was Kate Thornton, the the person who's presenting our promo for us, um, and and Kate was saying, you know, if you were starting out, why on earth wouldn't you just do this yourself? Because if you've got an idea of a great format, you know, technology now means that you can just take that, you know, directly. And I think um, it's a much more exciting place to be um, in the kind of wild west of new formats and new channels, um, you know, versus going and giving all of your best ideas to a broadcaster. We've seen this um, it mentioned, you, know, you mentioned YouTube spaces, and obviously they are using that as a, a way of fostering very close relationships with influencers onto their platform. Uh, yeah. I think particularly also of comparison to the work that the, the YouTuber Casey Neistat, which many people will be, I'm sure, familiar with, with his project 318 in New York, that's doing a very similar thing of launching a, an independent space for creators. Um, mm. I suppose doing something there right in the heart of Langham Place, you know, across the road from the beam, you know, what's mm. the... Um, how much do you think this could become a new funnel for the BBC in particular to pick up these types of shows being in such close proximity there and obviously with a lot of um, you know, kind of shared interests and, and similar folks you know, navigating that space? Mm. I mean, uh, yeah. We're, we're, we're next to the BBC, I guess, because, uh, you know, it's a brilliantly recognisable kind of um, location. But, um, you, know, we're not, I, you know, we're not really thinking that necessarily broadcasters will move quick enough or in an agile enough way to actually pick up some of the best stuff that we might be doing in the studio. And I suspect other digital platforms will be first to pick stuff up. I mean, it'd be great if, you know, the BBC or others wanted to pick stuff up. Brilliant. Um, but I, you know, we're, we're there because essentially, you know, the world of content production is changing and the kind of, you know, monopoly that the big broadcasters had is just changing so rapidly. And, um, you know, we quite like the idea of being, you know, a very, very, uh, small uh, 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 version of the BBC on their doorstep and, you know, challenge, challenging them really. 
we've seen obviously in the recent discussion about Channel 4 moving their headquarters out of London and remodeling the Victoria space that they occupy currently to uh, welcome more independents uh, who want to produce and use those facilities. You have to ask the question of, well, why have Sky or the BBC or others not started something like this themselves? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a good question. I, I, I couldn't see why you wouldn't. And, you know, I think, you know, for particular particularly for something like the BBC, which is, a, you know, enormous sort of essentially a, a public money, um, you know, investment into content. Um, you know, the more that this country can do to support the amazing creatives and particularly the new generation of creatives that are coming out, um, you know, it's such an exciting space. You know, it, I, I, I can't, you know, really imagine why the BBC isn't doing more of it. I mean, to its credit, I think some of some of the work it's doing with BBC Three and supporting, um, you know, new uh, small uh, production companies is is really good. But you know, it could be. You know, my view is it could be doing a lot more of that. That's obviously at the kind of high end. What about in the kind of the more lo-fi type of thing that you might expect to be coming out of places like YouTube Spaces or Tog? You know, what type of content do you think we might see yeah. to come from these places? I mean, yeah. Uh, so, um, so Yahoo are doing an interesting thing at the moment. They they did a kind of you know pop-up studio for the royal wedding for for Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and. They, um, you know, such was the success around that with younger audiences that they're now doing a weekly show, you know, with updates on the British royal family. And it's done in a, a really fresh, engaging way. You know, it's so much better than the sort of, you know, normal way that the broadcasters look at the royal correspondent. It's all a bit dirty and sort of slightly lifeless, the kind of coverage of what the royal family doing. But we've got this amazing new breed of young royals, you know, glamorous, engaged, uh, inspirational. And so, um, you know, Yahoo have got this amazingly successful show that they just do from, you know, basically do from a broom cupboard. And yet, you know, with younger audiences, brilliant. I mean, why didn't anyone else realize that suddenly the royal family is really cool again and young audiences, young audiences just think it's fantastic? Why hasn't anyone else done this? And anyway, they, you know, there they are doing it from a broom cupboard and having amazing success with it. So, Tim, these new spaces, obviously, they have a much lower barrier to entry, particularly for those that are thinking about making Christian content or religious content that maybe would be more difficult to pick up in other places. What perspective do you have on how this might change the ability for that type of content to make it to air? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this just feels like an enormous opportunity at the moment. Um, uh, you know, the, the, as exactly as you said, the barriers, you know, the cost technology barriers to distributing your content to a worldwide audience have just, you know, hit to the floor. And therefore, this is a time of opportunity. And particularly for Christian communicators, um, you know, the ability to start to reach global audiences with really innovative formats that you might have struggled with to get TV commissioner to commission, we are living in that moment. And so there is the challenge for really cracking formats to be done, uh, you know, and particularly, I think, by the, the generation below me to be really be thinking, you know, what are new ways of doing this? But we are in a time of opportunity. Well, Tim, we wish you all the success with uh, Tog Studios. Just tell us if people want to kind of get in touch or find out more, where can they go to do that? Uh, well, that is very kind. So, yeah, Tog Studios, powered by Greenrock, the, the company I co-own, and you can go to greenrock.tv, greenrock.tv, and uh, you can find out more, and um, we would love people 
people to come and look around the space and start to use it for amazing new content. Thanks there to Tim Plimming and we wish him all the best with the new endeavour. Now, next up on the show, I have got some really interesting content here for you from Matthew Sorens. Matthew works for World Relief and has recently reissued the book that he first published nearly 10 years ago called Welcoming the Stranger, looking at the whole area of immigration and how Christians, churches and the media are responding to it in the 2018 context. Given recent changes to the immigration policies in the US, in particular in light of the family separation policy, which has caused so much controversy and worldwide headlines as we see families separated at the US border, in particular coming from Mexico, it seemed like an appropriate time to catch up with Matt and find out what his views were on how the media is responding to this, and crucially how as Christians working in the media we can engage with this subject matter. Matthew is an expert on immigration and has worked in the field for a long time, so really value his opinion on this area, and in particular distilling the subject so well for us. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. We wrote the first edition of this book, came out back in 2009, uh, when immigration, you know, had been a, a significant political issue here here in the United States. And I think if in some ways, uh, Jenny, my co-author and I were a little discouraged at that point in 2006, 2007, that the faith community hadn't been a larger voice and a larger part of the conversation in terms of pushing for policies that we think are consistent with with biblical values. I would say the Catholic Church was quite engaged, um, but the evangelical churches in the United States that that we're connected to were largely on the sidelines of that debate. That was part of why we wrote the book. And then I think we've rewritten the book and revised it, you know, almost a decade later. I'd say we've seen two significant trends almost in opposite directions. On one hand, we've seen a lot more engagement from churches around immigration in the United States, especially among evangelical churches. And we wanted to highlight that, to lift up some of those stories of the, of what has changed, both in terms of the ways that churches are serving their immigrant neighbors, uh, but also in the ways that church leaders are engaging in public policy discussions. Uh, it's really a pretty dramatic shift from a decade ago in terms of leaders from almost every evangelical denomination have affirmed a statement on immigration or have been involved in some way in speaking into this issue. But even with that, maybe despite that, I think we've seen a, a shift in another direction on the policy front, which obviously is the news story around the world. And that's uh, with the, the election of, of President Trump, um, with some of what the Congress has done. Uh, it's a much harsher climate towards immigrants today than it was just a few years ago. And that obviously represents a lot of uh, discontentment among American people who, who voted for that. That message resonated with a, at least a significant portion of the American population. And, and I think we have to be honest with a lot of people, local churches as well. And so we're trying to address that, explain what's happened, explain the implications on immigrants, on refugees of these policy changes, and also keep challenging the church to step into this in ways that we think are are not guided by one political party's platform, but are guided by the Bible. Obviously, given the nature of the, particularly the evangelical right that has supported President Trump in uh, the, both in his election and subsequently, 
do you see that they feel that that is a conflict of interest to then go and support a more pro-immigration policy or that they you know, a pro-humanitarian policy in many ways um, and how that has rubbed up against this recent controversy um, you know, how, are, how are churches managing to tread that line between supporting um, particularly the Republican Party and, and the White House at the moment with managing their need to kind of demonstrate the gospel and demonstrate Christian values when it comes to loving thy neighbor. Yeah, you know, I think if you look at the the evangelical community in the United States, and even how you define that, whether that's a theological definition or self-identification or, you know, whether you're talking really only about white evangelicals or evangelicals in general, which it's worth noting that depending on how you define it, somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of evangelical Christians in the U.S. are not white. Uh, large growth among Latino evangelicals, African and African-American and Caribbean evangelicals, Asian evangelicals. Evangelicals, and their voting trends actually look very different than white evangelicals. So some of the, the sometimes white evangelical becomes shorthand for evangelical in some of the reporting on this, and that's really inaccurate. And that but nuance among- gets lost, which I think is uh, another important point. We, we've tried to discuss before in the show that the actual the word evangelical is almost meaningless in many senses now, particularly outside <laughs> of the Christian community when it's being reported. Yeah, and I think especially in the U.S. context also ignores the global context where, I mean, there's millions of evangelicos in Latin America, or if you're looking in Africa, I mean, the evangelical church, the church that is Protestant is largely evangelical there, and by a theological definition, and, you know, we just don't hear about that in the United States very much. But so in the U.S. context politically, it is true that, you know, roughly four or five white evangelicals self-identified who voted in the presidential election voted for President Trump. And, you know, I don't think it's fair to presume that that's, in all cases, an endorsement of his immigration policies. And you can see that in the exit polls, the majority of people who voted for President Trump actually disagree with him on some significant immigration issues. But it was a a factor that really, uh, for probably a minority of his of the of the voters, including a minority of white evangelicals, it was the issue that mobilized certain people. That was the reason they voted. And I think that that has made it complicated for church leaders who probably disagree with, at least with the rhetoric and probably with significant differences in terms of public policy, whether that's, you know, dramatically reducing refugee resettlement, whether that is, uh, you know, changing this program for the people we call dreamers, people who were brought to the U.S. as children, usually 10, 20, you know, 30 years ago at this point, so they have children of their own at this point. That policy, you know, I think there has been a lot of support from white evangelicals. We can see that in the polls and even higher support from non-white evangelicals. Some of the folks who've been a part of the, you know, the sort of informal group advising the president from uh, the, of this evangelical advisory group, a number of them have been quite outspoken on the issue of dreamers. A number of them have been quite outspoken in the last few weeks on the family separation policy. And frankly, I think that's part of why we saw the president uh, pivot. And I I don't want to necessarily say he reversed his policy because it's not a return to what it would have been six months ago. Uh, The president's approach is basically instead of separating families, let's detain them indefinitely, which would not have happened on a large scale um, in the past. The Obama administration has actually tried to do some of that, and a court told them they couldn't. So it's a little bit unclear what the Trump administration thinks is it's going to happen next. And they have this issue, I think if we understand it right, that there's still also a hold on how long they can hold the children in those families as well. So that creates a complication as well on top of that, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And that's what Obama, his administration actually tried to get amended and the courts wouldn't do so. I think it's unlikely the courts will do so for President Trump. 
in his administration. I also think it's fairly unlikely that the Congress, which would have the authority to change that, is going to do so. They've, they've proven they, they can't get anything done in immigration. Let's just stick on this point about the children. So, yeah, we've seen, particularly here in the UK, you know, make some. it's obviously not the same issue, but a comparison in one sense between what's happened with the Windrush generation here, where we've seen, obviously, recent controversy with many of the, um, often of Jamaican and West Indian um, you know, descent, people who came here in the wake of the Second World War, and then have since had major issues with their kind of immigration status and, and, and nationhood status. That was obviously many people who've served and are elderly, and now we're seeing the same thing happening in the US with children being separated from families. Why do you think it takes these very highly emotive, um, you know, kind of pictures of children being separated at borders or elderly people not being able to access cancer care to stimulate such real public um, outrage against the issue? Why are we not more engaged with this on an ongoing basis? Uh, you know, what, why are these flashpoints the things that have to get people? people to wake up to these moments. You know, the sad reality is the people who are the most antagonistic towards immigrants in the U.S., and uh, we have data on this in the U.S., I'd imagine it's not different in the U.K., are often the people who don't actually interact with with many or even any immigrants. So they're, they've often been fed a media diet that focuses, you know, in particular uh, television channels or radio programs or corners of the Internet on anecdotal stories that are very scary about immigrants, you know, this idea that refugees are somehow associated with terrorism or, or um, you know, that immigrants are disproportionately likely to commit crimes, that sort of thing, or they're uh, stealing jobs, all that rhetoric that we hear repeated. And it's until people start to say, oh, wait, immigrants also include that four-year-old child who is screaming for his mother. That's an immigrant, too. And maybe we could distinguish between these different categories of people who all are from a foreign country that may be the only thing they have in common. But I think it's it's when these news stories break through that remind people of the humanity of immigrants, which I think, again, from a Christian perspective, we are constantly trying to remind people that these are people made in the image of God. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to let every person come to the United States. It doesn't mean that, you know, that we don't have a rule of law. We think it's appropriate and also biblical to have a rule of law. But we do have, to, we can never dismiss the humanity of, of these people. And they're, frankly, they're much more likely to be small children who have done nothing wrong than to be a, a violent criminal. Those are a very, very, very small percentage of the overall people who, who are seeking to come to a country. How do you think that the um, the media dynamic that's changed so significantly since the Trump administration came to power has either helped or hindered um, the, the reality and the truth of this debate kind of coming to the fore? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think we've seen for a number of years, but I think it's been exacerbated in the last few years, is that people consume their preferred version of media. So they have their television channel that basically is going to tell them what they already believe and affirm their beliefs. And if they put anyone with a different perspective up, it'll be sort of a straw man from the fringe who you can knock over. And this happens on the left and the right in the United States. And I don't know if there's any if there's the equivalent in, in the UK or in Europe, but it's, it's fairly pronounced, especially in television media, but also online. Um, you know, people consume their preferred station channel uh, website and they're often not exposed to uh, you know to the full story and again that happens on the left and on the right um, our challenge as a Christian organization has been to really ask people to step back from merely taking partisan talking points on either side and saying, well, what does the Bible say? If you're a Christian who would say the Bible is your authority for this issue, which a lot of Americans would say, um, it's still a deeply religious country where a lot of people would at least 
say that the Bible is their top authority. And yet we had a, a poll that we commissioned from a Christian polling firm, Lifeway Research, uh, back in 2015. They found that only 12% of self-described evangelical Christians say that the Bible was the primary influence on their thinking on immigration. Uh, the, by their own admission, they they look to the media uh, more than the the Bible, the local church, and the views of national Christian leaders combined. So that's really the dynamic that we hope to change and say, yeah, the policies matter, the politics are important in some ways, but what's most important if you would profess to be a follower of Jesus is what does the Bible say on this? Part two of my interview with Matthew Sorens from World Relief coming up in just a moment's time. Just taking a quick break here to let you know about the day of prayer for the media happening on Sunday the 4th of November. That's the day that we join with churches and Christians across the UK to pray for the media. And this year we'll especially be wanting to pray for media professionals to be empowered to tell the whole story, the negative as well as the positive about rights and wrongs, truth and redemption. We're praying for increased opportunities to celebrate empathy in particular and that's what the whole subject is going to be if you want to read some of the prayers for the media that are already available from last year you can do that on the medianet website go to themedianet.org and if you want to sign up for our social media thunderclap which will broadcast out this prayer for the media on the 4th of november you can do that there on the website as well we encourage you to engage in praying for the media if you are in the media yourself maybe getting some groups together of your fellow christians around you in your organizations wherever you are and in encouraging Christian groups to support those who work in the media, maybe helping spread the word at your church on that Sunday, the 4th of November, maybe in small groups or online. So however you want to get involved, you can find all the information at themedianet.org. And you can also always join us on Facebook in the Christians in the Media UK group on Facebook. Right back now to my interview with Matthew Sorens, where we continue to talk about how he first got engaged with this whole area of immigration coming up now on Signal. You know, I think if, if you go back to really why we, I would be interested in writing the book in the first place, it was there's a few different instances in my own life. But I spent a summer as a college student, um, a 19 year old, I think, in Costa Rica, in a part of San Jose where most of the people I was volunteering with, with, with this Christian ministry, were Nicaraguan immigrants to Costa Rica and largely people who had fled, um, in some cases, who had fled violence back in the 80s, but mostly who had fled poverty in the 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, in Costa Rica, there are a broad range of views towards the Nicaraguan immigrants. But I think it's fair to say there's a lot of hostility among a lot of Costa Ricans. And I, I observe that. I witness that even even within, you know, my Christian friends there. And yet I was interacting with these Nicaraguan families who, you know, they weren't perfect people, but they were people working incredibly hard and just trying to, to provide for their families. And at one point I asked one of them, you know, why would you come here? It seems like you work so hard and you get treated terribly. And, you know, why not just stay in Nicaragua? And one of them told me, you know, Mateo, here we've got food on our plates. We've got a little bit of money to send to our elderly relatives back in, in Nicaragua. And, and that's all we can hope for. And that really stuck with me as I went back to the U.S. and realized that though I was living outside of Chicago at that point in a community with a, a good number of immigrants, I didn't really know any of them. I heard about them on television. I, you know, I heard about them on by things forwarded to me in an email, but I didn't know them personally. So I really made an intentional choice And um, it, while I was in college. And then as I finished college, I moved into an apartment complex 
in suburban Chicago where most of my neighbors were immigrants of one sort or another. I had neighbors from 20, 25 different countries of origin, some of them who'd come as refugees, fleeing persecution abroad, some of whom had come from Latin America, some with legal status, some without. It made the issue really personal for me and you know, it helped me to remind myself what I think the Bible teaches us, which is that these are my neighbors. And in this case, in a very literal sense, the neighbors who were living next door to me. And I was wrestling then with what does it look like to love those people, both in the way I interact with them day to day, but also in the who I vote for and how it, those those elected officials' policies are going to impact my neighbors. Mm. You're talking, obviously, in this uh, interview to obviously a lot of our listeners are working in journalism themselves and are, you know, representatives in the media. What would your message to them be? What would you have them do um, to kind of stand for these values and, and to engage with this issue? Yeah, you know, I appreciate that question. Media has such an important role. And, and there's great examples of really fantastic journalists here in the U.S., and I'm sure it's true in Britain as well, um, who are telling very nuanced stories. I think it's important both in looking at immigrants as well as in looking at people of faith, and those are often overlapping groups, to not paint with a broad brush. You know, So whether that's not describing all evangelicals evangelicals as this is what evangelicals believe when that turns out to be uh, very simplistic and not describing all immigrants or all immigrants from one particular country in a particular way. But I think looking at the intersection of faith and immigration is a really fruitful area for for journalists, um, for media, because it turns out, at least in the U.S. context, and I know this is true in, in the U.K. and in Europe as well, well, most immigrants are people for whom faith is very important. Um, many of them, the Christian faith, uh, others, you know, they're Muslims or they're coming from other religious background. Uh, but that is a story that I think often gets missed um, by, by American journalists, at least, or at least by some American journalists. And I, I think it's, it's a really important part of the story of how our society is changing and how the church is changing in the United States as a result of immigration. And from my perspective, that's mostly a change for the better. Uh, the church is being revitalized by immigrant communities, most of whom are already Christians when they get here, some of whom are not Christians but become Christians in, in the U.S. as they are welcomed and served by local congregations. And I also think there is a bit of a disconnect that is true that a lot of American Christians have views on immigration that are not what I would want them to be. And yet some of those individuals are part of local churches that are giving sacrificially of their time and their resources to help and welcome immigrants in their community. And often it's once they begin to do so that their their attitudes and some of the the policy questions start to change as well. I think one of the reasons that Jenny and I wrote this book is we, we do care a lot about immigration policy. It impacts people we care about. But I think we're even more concerned concerned about the the witness of the church as we respond to this issue. You know, Jesus told uh, his disciples that they were a, a light, uh, a city on a hill shining on a hill, and that we should be doing good deeds that those who are not, you know, who are outside would see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. That's the reputation I want the church, whether in the U.S. or in Europe or anywhere, to have as we respond to issues of immigration. And I think, frankly, that, you know, it's it remains to be seen what our reputation will be as we respond to the current crises around around immigration, around refugees. There's stories that I think are a great witness to who Jesus is, and there's stories that frankly make me a little bit embarrassed to be known as a Christian. And I'm hoping that the church comes through and, and really stands with immigrants who are very vulnerable right now. Thank you. 
Thank you so much there to Matthew Sorens from World Relief for joining us on this month's episode of Signal to talk about this whole issue of immigration. If you want to get their book, you can get the re-release of that now available where all good books are sold. It's called Welcoming the Stranger, looking at this whole topic of immigration and how you can engage with it. Thanks so much for joining us on this month's episode of Signal for the month of June. Coming up in July and onwards, back to our regularly scheduled programming, including interviews coming up next month with Lucy Denyer, who is the Deputy Comment Editor at The Daily Telegraph. If you haven't done so already, we would love it if you would subscribe to the show. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help getting the show found by others. And would you think about sharing it with a Christian colleague or just someone that you maybe want to have this dialogue around faith and the media? We would appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with us on the show, you can almost email signal at themedianet.org. If you've got story ideas, suggestions or interviews that we should be doing, then let us know. And you can also get in community with other Christians in the media through the Medianet on the Christians in the Media group on Facebook. And of course, follow us on Twitter which is at the media net and use hashtag signal when speaking about the show that's it from me your host james polter if you want to get in touch you can always also contact me on twitter at james polter on instagram as well and anywhere else that's it for now until next time be well and we'll see you on the next episode of signal from the media net